I was thinking as uh, we shared about the Christmas blessing tree of the story I heard from my, from my mom uh, growing up. My mom grew up, her, her dad died when she was six, her stepdad died when she was 12, her mom died when she was 16, her brother died in Vietnam when she was 22. Uh, so she was, uh, especially in her mid-teen years, um, very, very poor. And the only Christmas gifts they would get were what the nuns would bring from the local Catholic church at Christmas time. And here's my mom now, so many years later, I won't say how many, but so many years later, and uh, she still talks about the kindness of, uh, in this case, the Catholic church uh, to remember them at Christmas. And we have the same opportunity to create a story that families may tell for you know, decades to come. And we, of course, want them to connect that gift with the, the grace of God in the sending of Jesus, the ultimate gift. So uh, I'm amazed every year at how many gifts. I forget last year the number that we had, but it was an astonishing number of gifts that our church gives at, the, at this year. And let's do it again this year. Okay, maybe this year even more important than any other year before, frankly. Well, today is our final message in, uh, in Romans 14 and in the area that Paul calls disputable matters. Never underestimate church folks' ability to take a minor thing and make it a major thing. And I'm going to give you, this is my best example of this. Uh, that I'm aware of, although there are uh, many, many examples of this, but uh, the best one that I've ever come across uh, that I can tell that doesn't involve our own church, lest I indict anybody, it's always safe to talk about them other churches, you know. So uh, just to tell a story about one of them other churches, over the years I've been privileged to uh, take tours to Israel, take people to Israel, and it's a wonderful thing. I hope that we can get you know, back to doing that in, at some point in the future. Uh, but one of the must-see stops if you, if you go to Israel and if you go to Jerusalem is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, okay? This is the uh, ancient church, fourth century church built by, uh, or I think at least identified by uh, Constantine, Emperor Constantine's mother, uh, and, and they financed the building of this in a big giant church in Bethlehem. And so if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre because it is built over the traditional and fairly historically uh, verifiable location of the tomb of Jesus. And uh, so it's a, it's a special place. Uh, if a Christian, it's a, it's a reverent place. It's a sacred place. Uh, but when we, if you were to go there with me, I would pause outside the door of the church, and I would say, now let's just take a moment, and why don't you look up here? And if you were to look up there, we have a picture of it, uh, you would see that there is a ladder that is leaning against the wall, okay? Now, an interesting thing about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is uh, there are a number of denominations uh, ancient denominations of, of the church that lay claim to the church. And centuries, centuries ago, they had to work out an arrangement for how they would kind of share this church. And uh, I have a list here. Here are, the, uh, here are the denominations that lay claim to this. Greek Orthodox, Armenian Apostolic, Roman Catholic, Coptic, Ethiopian, and Syriac Orthodox. 
And so they had to make arrangements for who had what space and who shared what space. And needless to say, over the years, this has been very tense. In fact, like 12 years ago, there was a giant riot amongst the, amongst the monks. That's not easy to say. Uh, uh, because, you know, one monk happened to go into an area that was the other denomination's area or something like that. And so it's, uh, it's always like they're always ready to go to war uh, there at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which by itself sounds blasphemous to say it, but that's just the reality. So back to the ladder. This ladder, uh, nobody knows who put the ladder there. Um, they don't know. And things are so like committed to not changing in status quo that that ladder has been there for somewhere around three centuries. And nobody dares to move the ladder because that's where the ladder goes. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't lead to anywhere. It's just... It's just there. And uh, so, as I said, we aren't sure when it was placed there, but the latter, there is a, an etching of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that includes the latter, and that is dated 1728. That's an old ladder, right? That's an old ladder. All local churches, if you look carefully, have some ladders leaning against the wall. These things that, in the grand scheme, not such a big deal. But in that little location, in the DNA, the culture of that local church has become a really big deal. And you better not mess with it. And you better not touch it. And you better not change it. Lest a war <laughs> take place. Disputable matters, what are they? They're not core gospel truths. We're not talking about the essentials of the gospel. We're not talking about how God makes sinners righteous. We're talking about secondary things, thirdary things, fourthary things, and so forth. How do we handle them? Because if you've been in a church very long, you know if you don't handle the ladder leaning against the wall matters very well, there will be division in the church, and there'll be rancor amongst the people, and you will have yourself a nuclear explosion. And of course, the irony of the ladder in the Jerusalem church is it is located at the site where Jesus rose from the dead. In terms of the most significant places on the planet and to our faith, there would be the resurrection of Jesus. And yet even there, the ladder rises in significance. And this is kind of what Paul's getting at here in Romans 14. And we've, been, we've spent a number of weeks in this. This is the last week in this. Uh, some of you breathe a sigh of relief. Talk to Paul in heaven someday why you spent so much time on this. We're preaching expositionally through it. But Paul wrote his letter to the Roman church, and there in the Roman church, he identifies in chapter 14, there were ladder-type issues. He lists three of them. Old Testament dietary laws, uh, Sabbath-keeping, and wine-drinking are the three in Romans 14. And to review here, he describes two factions in the church. There were those in the church that he, that had what he calls a weak faith or a weak conscience, and they viewed these things as things that they did not have freedom to participate in for a number of reasons. 
but they didn't do it. And then there was the other group, and the other group were the strong in faith or the strong in conscience, and they viewed those things as things that were totally fine and uh, that, that uh, they should enjoy. Now, as we've seen, the real problem is not the dietary law necessarily or the Sabbath keeping. The real issue is how God's people treat each other within the church and the attitudes with which they have towards people they disagree with. Because we know in, in this case, in Romans 14, the weak were looking at the strong and saying, oh, and you call yourself a Christian, you're participating in those things? And the strong were looking at the weak and saying, you know, who are you to be judging me? And, and they were despising these weaker faith Christians, and it was creating all kinds of problems in the church. So Paul writes now in his uh, magnus opus, Romans, and it, it almost feels like beneath the glory of Romans 1 through 11 for him to have to deal with this kind of stuff, but this is life in the real world, isn't it? And isn't it good to know that those Christians in the Roman church in the first century, pretty much just like us as well, right? So he writes this, and how does he clean up the mess? And I'm gonna just quickly summarize what we've seen so far. And, and, and this really is probably the big point, is he says, hey, Christians, we gotta keep the main things the main things. Keep the main things, the main things. Look at Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What was the danger in Rome? That they would take a minor thing and they would elevate it and make it a major thing and be ready to go to war over it. And when we do that, we... By taking a minor thing and making a major thing, we displace the thing that is supposed to be the major thing, and that moves down to being a minor thing. And Paul's saying here, don't die on the hill of a minor thing. Don't die on the hill of one of these kind of matters. Why? Because Jesus didn't die for dietary laws. Jesus didn't die for Sabbath keeping. Jesus died for sins. Jesus died to make us right with God. Jesus died as the great reconciler of humanity with a holy God. And when God's people are nourishing themselves on the grand, glorious, sweeping truths of the gospel, it keeps the gospel the main thing and Jesus the main thing. And when Jesus is the main thing, the minor things stay minor things. You hear of a church that's dividing over a ladder and somewhere along the way, subtly in the church, the gospel and Jesus was not the main thing. And that created a, a void. And into the void comes the ladder on the wall. Or the color of the carpet. Or who's in charge of the kitchen. Keep the main thing the main thing, church. Paul also emphasizes, why judge other people when Jesus is gonna judge you? He says that in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That church, they were, they were judging one another, they were evaluating one another, they were, they were questioning the, 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 the godliness of one another, and, and Paul basically says, oh, if, if you wanna be all about judgment, I got a judgment you should be worrying about, and it's not your brother who keeps the Sabbath or doesn't, it is you standing before God and giving an account of your life. 
And guess what? The way that we treat one another within the church is one of the things that we will be evaluated by Jesus himself. We tend to think that, you know, he's going to evaluate it about this, that, you know, these sort of, I don't know, big things. No, it's, it's things like love within the congregation and disunity and sowing seeds of discord. All of these are things that we will be evaluated by Jesus for. And Paul says, you want to worry about judgment? you got to be thinking about the judgment that's coming for you. Quit judging your brothers on these minor things and worry about Jesus and what he's going to say. And then thirdly, we've seen regarding conscience, we spent a whole Sunday talking about the conscience because that's a big theme here in Romans 14. He says here, don't violate your conscience. Strong, don't be like you exerting peer pressure on the weak to do something that their conscience doesn't allow them to do. Weak, don't violate your conscience, but we should seek to mature our conscience and to conform it to the word of God. That conscience is the moral compass God's placed within us. It's not the voice of God. It is not infallible. Uh, But we're not to violate it. We're not to violate it. It's been influenced by many things. What your parents told you. What your your grandma uh, prayed over you. A key disciple person in your life. Pastor of the past, or even me, possibly. (laughs) I've been here long enough. I probably qualify for some of you as being that. But... These are all things that shape our view of what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Most important is not what I say or somebody else says, but what God's word says, because God's word is infallible. So when it comes to our conscience, don't disobey it, but also don't worship it. Don't bow down to it. That's making your conscience an idol. Conform it to the word of God. And then uh, fourth, and this is our, our, our message today, is that love and unity are more important than secondary matters. Love and unity are more important than secondary matters. And we pick up now our text uh, in Romans 15, verses one through three. Here's uh, some fresh, fresh text for us. Here's what it says. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. May God bless his word to us today. What does that mean? And what is this all about? Well, note here that Paul identifies himself with the strong. What's the pronoun? that he uses there, we who are strong. So Paul's not saying I'm with the weak ones, he's saying I'm with the strong ones. And if there was anybody who ever understood the essential gospel, it's the guy that wrote Romans 1 through 11. If there was ever a guy who probably had the strongest conscience, most conformed to God's word conscience, it was the Apostle Paul. We think about even his own story. Remember, before he met Jesus there on the road to Damascus, We know he was a Pharisee. We know that he was a fastidious Pharisee, which is also not easy to say. (laughs) Uh, And he talks at length about how careful he was about his religious life and following the law right down to the little details. We know that he was passionate for uh, the, the, the traditions of Judaism. But then what happens? 
he meets Jesus. He becomes a Christian. And now the Pharisee who hated the Gentiles becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. The guy that would never have uh, spoken or even liked a Gentile now is the one sharing Christ with them and, and no doubt dining with them. Here's a guy that prior to meeting Jesus never ordered off the non-kosher menu. But after meeting Jesus, can you imagine him out with the Gentiles probably eating things he had never eaten before and going, wow, that actually tastes pretty good. You should think that next time you have some bacon with breakfast. One more reason to love the new covenant. So Paul was definitely a strong in faith dude. Perhaps the strongest ever. But this strength of conscience that he had, he says, this has now obligations within the congregation, within the community of faith. If you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, you know, I've heard this series, I actually think I'm on the strong side, okay? Well, great, but realize that comes, that comes with obligations, okay? Look at verse one again. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That Greek word for obligation, it's the same one that we see in chapter 13 when he's talking about debt. Owe no man anything. Okay? It's the same kind of sense here is that uh, as we must pay our debts financially, the strong within the congregation have responsibilities and duties that go along with that. You might hear that and go, well, I'm going to switch over to being weak then. I don't want to go to church with any obligations or debts. I'm going to side with the weak. No, that's not what we're aiming for here. What, is, what are the obligations of those that are strong? He says here that we are to bear with the weak and with their struggles. And if you start thinking a little bit, this sounds kind of like love. That's where we're going, okay? To bear with, and by the way, bear with here isn't like put up with. We sometimes think that, right? Like, uh, I'm gonna bear with you, which means I'm gonna put up with you. No, that's not the sense here. It literally means to carry to carry, to carry the burdens of those who have the weaker conscience, to share the weight of that weak conscience with them. Did you know that having a weak conscience or an overactive conscience comes with tremendous burdens? We say, Pastor Steve, how do you know that? Because this is largely the story of my own life. I've hinted at this in the past. I grew up in a in a, in a home, I'm so thankful that I heard the gospel and came to faith in Jesus, but in a kind of branch of Christianity where there were a whole lot of, we'll say, hard to support from scripture rules for how good Christians live. And I was the oldest child, I was the please the parents child, and with that, I grew up with a, I would say, if I've struggled, I've struggled with an oversensitive conscience. And you know what that produces in your life? Guilt. Guilt. Have I done it right? Have I done it perfect? Have I done it enough? You talk to people in, in, from backgrounds typically associated with fundamentalism and Christianity, and they will talk with you about what, it, what it's like to be laden with 
guilt, wondering if maybe you have somehow displeased God because there's some rule or line that somebody told you, and now you wonder, am I pleasing to God or not? This internal condemnation is debilitating. I talked with a friend one time. He went to, shall we say, a very well-known, extremely conservative, well-known Christian college in our country. And now you're going, I wonder which one it is. It shall remain unnamed. But this uh, college had strict rules about everything. I mean, your entire life was pretty much controlled from on high. And he went to this college, and he was, you know, good guy and all that, but he told me, he says, you know, the, the most damaging thing about, from my experience at that college was that I got used, I got used to disobeying my conscience. I got used, I can't say it quite right for some reason right now, but I, can't, I got used to not... Uh, obeying my conscience. To, I got used to numbing my conscience because I was all the time, everything I did, I was breaking some rule somewhere and I just got used to it. And you know, the Bible says it's a very dangerous thing when we numb our conscience and we get used to going against that inner voice inside of us. Oftentimes, uh, in, this, in these kind of uh, versions of Christianity, all of a sudden somebody will sin spectacularly and it's a shock to everybody. Like, where did that come from? How, how on earth could he do something like that? And one of the challenges in this, this kind of background is that you get used to quietly in your heart violating your conscience. And when your conscience is numb, you can sin spectacularly. And it's a shock, and it's a pain, and it's a, a damage, and it's a sorrow when that happens. But there are reasons that it does. So all that to say, there are burdens that the weak in faith conscience type Christian is bearing. Now you look, at, you look at them, they look fine, right? This is all inside. The sense of guilt, the sense of disappointment, the sense of not uh, performing as I ought they are drowning in guilt. So the last thing that they need in church is for the strong to come along and to heap more guilt on them and to judge them and to say, oh, you're a, not a good Christian because uh, your perspective on these things. They don't need that. They're already drowning in guilt. What do they need? Here now is the obligation of the strong. They need the strong in faith not to bring condemnation, but to help carry the burdens. To help carry the burdens. I was thinking about this sense of carrying here, and maybe this will help you. Um, you know, it seems like during the pandemic, we, we sort of are on this uh, grocery binge thing where, like, uh, you know, it's, it's like we're, we're, you know, Bears hibernating for winter and getting supplies for all of that. And then, you know, food supply seems to be doing fine, and so we kind of eat it down, eat it down, eat it down, and then it's this massive clear-out Costco-type trip. So my wife comes home, and the van is just filled with groceries. I got to tell you, I don't really like carrying groceries in. 
And so I don't. You look, wait, I feel judgment from you right now. Is that what I'm sensing in the room? I just got done saying no judging, okay? No, I, 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 I'm saying I don't prefer to carry groceries in, but when the van shows up and it's filled with groceries and my wife Jennifer has been, you know, standing in line for three hours or whatever to check out, the last thing she wants to do is to carry all those groceries in. And so that's when I say, girls, go help your mom. <laughs> no. What do I do? I help carry the burden. Right? When you're carrying groceries, I mean, it's, it is tedious, right? Like if the bag breaks, the pickles, you know, break on the floor and you've got, you know, you don't do it right and your bread is smashed and the eggs are cracked and... I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's an important thing to spend a lot of money on these groceries. You want to get them from the car into the pantry and the fridge safely. We need help doing it. We help carry those burdens. Can I help you carry that, dear brother or sister, that guilty conscience? Can I help you carry that sense of burden you're feeling, even if it's Ludicrous, even if it's unnecessary. There's no Bible verse. Can I help you carry that? Not judging, but helping. That's the obligation of the strong. And now you say, okay, well, how do we do that? And Paul gets practical now. Notice what he says. He says, it basically is this. You're putting their needs ahead of your own. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of you please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And now we're getting into a cultural thing that our church, and frankly every church, either needs to be reminded or needs to implant in the DNA. And that is, who am I here for? What does it mean to be a part of a local church? Well, what, who, who am I here for? What is the orientation of my heart? Is it that I am here for me. And I want to impose my needs upon as many people as I possibly can. I want them to carry my groceries. Or, as Paul is urging here, the opposite of that, especially for those who self-identify as the strong. It's imperative that we see ourselves in community with one another, not here to be to, to, uh, uh, to, to, to be served, but to serve, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And if the Savior Jesus came into this world with that as his basic orientation, how much more we, saved by Jesus, following Jesus, should have that as a kind of way that we kind of conduct ourselves around here? How can I help you? How can I put your needs ahead of my own? Now, in context, this means that the strong in faith willingly defer to the weak in faith in the secondary non-essential issues, especially when circumstances call for it, okay? That's just, I'm gonna just do that, okay? This doesn't mean that the whole church is hostage to the weak. That's not healthy either, but it does mean, here's a great summary. There's consideration. That's the word I would put on all of Romans 14, is that we are considerate towards one another. 
and each other's perspectives and each other's needs. Consideration. Now, he's urged prior here, don't flaunt your freedom and don't pressure the weak to do what their conscience doesn't allow. You may say, how am I supposed to know? Well, here's the litmus test. Is this for his or her good? Does it build him or her up? Again, our instinct is, is this good for me? Does this prop me up? Does this build me up? But in the church, we're more about the needs of other people. I think this echoes 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Okay, what's love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, does not boast, is not arrogant, is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Does that sound like a pretty good church to be a part of right there? What do you think? I think if I could be a part of a church, that would be a fantastic place. Highlight of my week, getting to be around people like that. And that's the point, is that this comes down to love. In the secondary matters, in these non-essential issues, what do you hear? Orientation, priority, strong in love. What pleases them? I think about marriage. I've learned so much about so many things uh, now being married for some years. And the worst moments in our marriage is somehow when I am putting my needs first. The best moments in my marriage with Jennifer, generally, are somehow when I'm putting her needs first. That makes for a great marriage, doesn't it? Makes for a great home. Makes for a great church. And that's the aim here. I don't have to tell you that we are, uh, we're kind of stuck in this year, aren't we? (laughs) Is there some pill you can take and wake up like in June 2021? Because I would probably be open to that trial medicine. Uh, What a season we've had. Pandemic, had this little political thing, out of ah going on. Or think about the week we've had, specifically with politics and our country. I mean, it has been a, it has been a, a, a rending week in our country. It seems that our country's orientation is far from an ideal that one president put out there. I'm sure you've heard this. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Seems like we're a long ways from that right now, doesn't it? I mean, we are a long ways from that ideal. And we can say, oh, the country, the country. And no doubt many of you were, you know, saying similar things this week as as, uh, things unfolded. But you know what? Our country is not the kingdom of God. In a gospel-believing, Bible-believing, Jesus-exalting local congregation, what we don't see in the country ought to be seen in the church. 
Because to be a part of a church, you're basically saying, I am a sinner. I see Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. I believe in him. My trust is in him. I'm following him. And I'm joining all these other people in this local congregation. We're all following him together. And if the DNA of the gospel is a self-giving savior, then the culture of the church ought to be similarly putting other people's needs ahead of our own. Are there strong opinions circulating, even amongst the congregation these days? I would say, oh yes, very much. Perhaps more than I can ever remember in the near quarter century that I have been here. <laughs> if I was to look at the social media posts, I would say there's some fairly strong opinions, perhaps even represented in the room right now. Are these opinions about the essential truths of the gospel. Not much. The strong opinions that I have seen largely have something to do with politics, pandemic policies, mask, not mask, non-gospel-y sort of things. Strong opinions on those things. And so we step back and we say, how do we discern those who are mature from those who are immature in these matters? And this is why I shared two weeks ago the inverted pyramid. Do you remember this now? The inverted pyramid. And this isn't perfect. It doesn't have everything in it. And don't ask this to do something it's not intended to do. It's only intended to show that not everything is as important as everything else. Right, what is the foundation of the church? It's Jesus, the person and the work of Jesus. And then you have essential gospels that are just right there that are foundational to, uh, the, to, the, to, the, to the gospel as the apostles gave it to us. But then you keep moving up the, 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 the chart and the further away you get from the base, the more flexible we get and the, the less like dogmatic about it we get. And what's the mortar for all of it? Love. Okay, love. I submit this to you as a good model for what mature Christianity, how it handles things. The immature will do this. If you would just, I just simply flip it. This is, this is immaturity. This is, you can't move the ladder for 400 years approach. Where what? The minor things now are the basis of everything, the most important thing, and the major things now are not the things that we're actually gonna be that passionate about. We're gonna be more flexible about those things. This is what leads to liberal theology when the main thing isn't the main thing and we kind of give on the, on the, on the main thing to, to, to agree on a minor thing. The immature will make small things really important things. This is my reality now as a, as a dad of a, I have a seven-year-old daughter and a five-year-old daughter. A regular occurrence in our home is, and I love them both very much, especially when they get the groceries. <laughs> a regular occurrence in our home is suddenly there is a blood-curdling scream. And we go rushing, and here's my five-year-old daughter, Madeline. And she is just ballistic. 
And of course, as a parent, you're like, you know, what happened? Are you, you know, are, are you bleeding? Are you dying? You know, the screams, and she'll say often, I'm bleeding. Where, sweetheart? Show me where. And I get the arm and I look and, and then I look some more and I, I try to get it in just the right light and I get the microscope out and I'm trying, if I, if I get it on the thousand uh, magnification, maybe I see a very small red dot there. The hysterics do not match the significance of the dot. Now, how do I handle that? I have options, right? I have options. I could, I could uh, for example, condemn her. You're such a drama queen. Grow up. I could go passive aggressive with her. Until you stop doing this, I'm not speaking to you again. I could give that a go, okay? Uh, I could mock her. You're such a baby. Do I do any of those things? No. We get Mr. Penguin out of the freezer and we sit on the couch and we put it on the boo-boo and daddy cuddles her like this until she's all better. Why? Because I'm the adult in the room. And if, if, if I'm going hysterical about the boo-boo like she's going hysterical about the boo-boo, the DeWitt home is not going to last very long. This is the call of maturity, to identify what is something that is actually life-threatening, something that is really significant, and what is something that is small. And in the small things, to bear with one another, to build up, to encourage, to put the other needs ahead of our own. Do we do that with the essential truth? No, we take a bullet. And many Christians have down through the years, taken a bullet for the essential truths of the gospel. But not the ladder against the wall stuff, not the minor stuff. No, we love each other. We keep the main thing the main thing and loving our brother and sister in their weakness is a main thing too. Now just in case we're confused about this and maybe you're still a little confused here, Paul gives a living, breathing example of what he's talking about. And guess who it is? Christ. Look at verse three. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now this is a quote from Psalm 69. He reaches back into the Old Testament. By the way, next Sunday's message is entirely about the role of the Old Testament in the life of the believer. I'm excited about that. That's where we're going, it's the next verse. But what he does is he reaches back into the Old Testament and he pulls out this example of a prophecy regarding the Messiah, and he applies it to Jesus. And here he says about Jesus that reproaches, the ESV translates it reproaches, means insult, if you're not familiar with 
reproach that Jesus would, be, would have, would have uh, insults. Now, you could say, well, I see that in the story. He hung on the cross, the two thieves on both sides of him. They insulted him the whole time. That's what it's talking about. Nope. You could look at the Pharisees that as he hung on the cross, they mocked him, right? Nope, that's not what it's talking about. How about the Roman soldiers that similarly mocked him and, and put the uh, hyssop up for him to drink from? The crown of thorns, the robe, all of that, you could say that's what it's talking about and you would be wrong. Look at it carefully. The reproaches of those who reproached you. Who's the you? This is Trinity. This is God the Father. We have reproached God. It is our insults of God, our sins against him. This is describing our pride, our sinfulness, the insult that our sin is against a holy God. Yet, those insults have fallen on who? Jesus. This is a little substitutionary atonement verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. How Jesus bore our sins. And what he does here is he marvels at the fact that Jesus would even do it. I mean, why would Jesus leave heaven where all he heard all the time was holy, 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 the Lord God is, is holy? And angels and seraphim singing his glory. That's the only thing his ears heard. He comes to earth now and he faces insults. And he faces all the things that he did here. Why would he have done that if his own pleasure was his top priority? If his own comfort was the main thing that he was living for? He would never have left, left heaven for that. But what do we see in the incarnation of Jesus? That God, Jesus, left the comfort, the glories, the riches that were his in heaven. And he prioritized not his own personal comfort, but whose? Ours. You want to talk about a strong? The ultimate strong is Jesus. You want to talk about the weak? The ultimate weak is us. And he placed our interests ahead of his own. And he came and he died for our sins. And what Paul is saying is, hey, strong conscience types, if you are actually mature, you will do with the non-essential things what Jesus did with the essential things, with the reproaches. You will orient your attitude towards what is best for others. He writes this famously in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How about it, church? whose orientation, congregants, members, whose orientation about being a part of the church is not, what can I suck out of this church? What can I get out of these people? How can they meet my needs? But an orientation because of the gospel where I am a part of the faith community to give of myself for others, to put other people's needs ahead of my own. And when we do that, what happens to the ladder leaning against the wall in the church? And things like that. They don't necessarily go away. But they go way down the priority list. 
Oh, you want to fight about the ladder? I'm not going to fight about the ladder because I don't care about the ladder. It can stay there for, I don't know, 400 years. I don't care because I'm not here about the ladder. It's not about the ladder. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is about the gospel. It is about the great commission. It is about making disciples for Jesus. And when those sacred, glorious gospel truths are in that place of number one in the local church and number one in my heart, these secondary matters do not rise to a place that we're gonna fight about it and go to war about it and compromise our testimony in the community about it. Why? Because Jesus has filled our hearts. He's the main thing. And when Jesus is the main thing, it keeps all the minor things, minor things. And this is the key to unity, friends. Because there are so many differences of opinion represented right here in this room in this one service that could otherwise divide us, otherwise make us mad at each other, otherwise think less of each other. There are so many things like that, especially in the day that we're living in. And the watching world that goes to war about all these things thinks, oh, they're just like us. There's nothing special in the church of Jesus Christ. How different that is than when our testimony can be this. Hey, Bethel Church, uh, you guys seem to be, kind, you, get, you get along with each other. How are you doing that? What's your secret? You're racially different? Yeah. You, you, you get along good? Yeah. Your politics are different? Yeah. You still get along? Yeah. You all have different opinions on pandemic policies there? Yeah. Y'all still getting along? Oh, yeah. How? And in our country and in this community, where those are the things that people are going to war over and hating each other and saying the most vile things against each other, such that communities and neighborhoods and even families, some of you are dreading Thanksgiving, families are deeply divided over these things. How can a church like ours possibly be united? And the answer is that Christ did not please himself. That our reproaches fell on him. And when you really look at the cross, friends, there is a reservoir of love and unity which creates this stretchy, flexible capacity to get along and care for people who are different than us in the secondary things and to do so for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.